Well, you made it to part 10. That's a good, a good thing. You have arrived. You've arrived at least at the end of the instruction. We haven't arrived at the uh, end of putting the truth into practice. But we're going to wrap up our series tonight with what I hope is the most practical, at least in terms of what we deal with every day in our Christian life, our sanctification. So before we dive into that, let's pray together. God, thank you very much for our study this semester, the importance of diving into our understanding of your spirit. It's hard enough to just grapple with the idea of a triune God. We don't know anything like that here, and our experiences uh, make it hard for us to fully even grasp the triunity of God, but we're grateful that this is clearly what the Bible has taught, what it does teach, what the church has affirmed throughout the centuries. We recognize the mystery of the nature of the triune God, and we seek to understand the present contact that we have with you through the third person of the Godhead. And so it's helpful for us to understand the distinctiveness, the role, the specific things that are spelled out in your word that give us a sense of anticipation and expectation as to what your spirit wants to do in this world, what he's done in history through the Old Testament, the differences in the new covenant, and just how we, as we think about tonight, how we are to interact with him and how he works within our lives. So I pray, God, that you'd open up our minds to understand the truth of your word. As we go through so many passages tonight, most of them on the screen, we still want to um, to carefully read what we see with our eyes and be able to ingest the truth of your word. Give us clear thinking. Thanks for our meal. I just pray now we can settle in to study your word and give us a great sense of, of reaping understanding and enlightenment and truth because we've spent time here together. Thanks for this crew and for their faithfulness and their endurance to make it to the end of this semester, and I pray that you would allow them to reap many things because of their focus on pneumatology this semester. God, we commit the night to you now in Jesus' name. All right. We'll talk about our sanctification and the Holy Spirit's role in our sanctification, but first we need to start defining terms, and we need to start with the word sanctification itself, our English word sanctification, and work our way back to where it has come from, the etymology of the word sanctification. Let's start there. Number one, and I I like to work backwards if there's not a direct connection, which there's not in this case from the Greek language, which is, of course, the language of the New Testament. Uh, Of course, the Bible was translated very early on in the Western church into Latin, and a lot of our uh, English words were derived from Latin. And the clue here is the word sanctus in a Latin dictionary. You looked up the word sanctus, you'd see next to it the English equivalent, and that's the word holy. And if you think through how many words into English uh, have, have come and cascaded in from Latin, uh, you know, words like sanctuary, still use, I suppose, in certain contexts, the inner sanctum. Uh, in this time of the year, Santa Claus, Santa Anna, San Juan, Santa Maria, Santa Barbara. Uh, you think of all these words, now, obviously those have come through Spanish, but the idea of the S-A-N-C and, and, and usually a T as well, S-A-N-C-T. These are all words that we're used to today uh, that come from the Greek word hagios. That's the Greek root of the word sanctification. Um, let's define it, then we'll work back up through those English words. Uh, sanctification, I'm sorry, uh, hagios means to be uh, holy, something that's holy. And of course, by holy, that's such a Bible word, we don't use it much outside of talk amongst Christians and theology or or our Christian lives, but of course that means literally to be set apart. It's a spatial term, something that is separate from other things. Uh, We say God is holy, he's other, he's separate, he's not like the rest of us. As the writer of Hebrews says, Christ is holy, he's set apart from sinners. He may 
live among us in his earthly uh, first coming, and he may live among us in the uh, millennial kingdom, uh, and certainly will live eternally in the eternal state among us. In that case, we'll all be holy. But in the other two incarnations, if you will, or other two arrivals, uh, advents, I should say, not incarnations. He's incarnate and has remained that way. He will live among sinful people, but he will be separate, set apart. And, and, and that refers to several things, and we'll get to that. Uh, hagiosmos is the word that we translate sanctification, which comes from the word holy. If you think about a sanctuary, which we don't have, if you notice, I don't ever call this room a sanctuary because it's really not a sanctuary. Sanctuary is a, is a room that is completely set apart for something ecclesiastical, something that's you know, related to what most people think of in terms of, you know, preaching or, uh, you know, the Lord's Supper. But if you've ever been here at Fall Fest or you volunteer in the junior high ministry or even the uh, True North, you'll see we transform this room into lots of things. It's not a room that's set apart for one function. Uh, We like to call it, in terms of the use in church, an auditorium. An auditorium obviously comes from the word to hear or the auditory experience of hearing, and uh, we don't think of this as any kind of special room. A sanct- uh, sanctuary was what we call the Old Testament uh, worship center because it was truly set apart. Inner sanctum is usually referring to the Holy of Holies. Santa Claus, by the way, that comes from Dutch, Sinterklaas, and that just means saint, right? St. Nicholas, the pastor, who they deemed a saint. But all that means, at least for us as Protestants, is that he was a Christian. Santa Anna, San Juan, Santa Maria, any of the sands that we're used to using in uh, our geographical designations. Holy. Uh, when we say something has uh, been sanctified, we're referring to the causal effect. What has happened? If it is holy, it has been set apart. It has been sanctified. That's the whole point of uh, hagiosmos. It is to be something that has been set apart. So that's the etymology of the word sanctification, and it's helpful and it's good for us to start with that because when you read your English Bibles and you get to the word holy, you have the word hagios. When you see the word sanctified or sanctification, you also have the word hagios. You have hagiosmos, which is a form of the word hagios. It's the same word. You could even use it, I suppose, and translate it in your own mind as being, you know, having been set apart or having been made holy. That's what the word sanctification means. Of course, there are aspects of this that need to be distinguished. Let's start with positional sanctification. And if you haven't been around the church that long, you should probably listen to the um, the equipped conference that we did, where all of the pastors. Uh, address the issue of sanctification and the confusion today where the only kind of sanctification among some, particularly in reform circles, is to focus on positional sanctification, which we will clearly grant in terms of the use of the word sanctification in the Bible. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 1-2, the positional sanctification refers to our justification. For instance, 1 Corinthians, which was all about correcting the behavior of the Corinthians, it says to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified... Right? They've already been set apart in Christ Jesus. That's a positional legal transfer of their identity from being outside of Christ to being in Christ. And they're called, and you can see this now, to be saints, different form of the word. Same word, though. Hagios is the root of both of those words. They have been set apart, and they are known as being set apart. They're set apart ones together with all those in every place that call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now, if they were sanctified in the sense that we're going to talk about under, under point two, you know, we, Paul wouldn't need to write this long letter with all these correctives regarding their behavior. But they were positionally sanctified. What does that mean? They're Christians. To be sanctified positionally is to say that I have become a Christian. First Corinthians 6.11 
This is perhaps a more familiar verse to you when it speaks of all the sinful behaviors and that we should be practically set apart from people that are claiming to be Christians and are practicing clearly unrepentant sin. He says, now this is the reality of who you were. Such were some of you, adulterers, homosexuals, all the rest, but you were washed and you were sanctified. That's the positional use of the idea of hagios, hagiosmos. You've been set apart by God. And here's the parallel in this context. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The idea of being set apart with the word hagios means God has taken my life and your life, if you're a Christian, and has set you apart and said, okay, you were outside of the grace of God. Now you're in Christ. You're forgiven. You're a child of God. It is the change in your status. Set apart from the rest to be God's possession. That's a good way to put it. Set apart from the rest to be God's possession. That's the idea of being sanctified. That's the spatial description of it. Of course, you didn't move physically, but your legal files, if you will, have been moved from one place to the next. Justification is an aspect of that. That's why he says next, you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. You have been made right, holy before God by the act of justification. God has taken your account that was hostile toward us and made us aliens from God, and it was nailed to the cross. It was forgotten. And again, don't forget the book of the Corinthians, obviously 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, but particularly 1 Corinthians is all about them changing their behavior. So these terms being used in this context, both in chapter 1 and chapter 6, are not referring to their behavior. It's referring to their positional status as children of God. That's sanctification, positional sanctification. Number three, we like to call this possess, uh, progressive, rather, progressive sanctification. Now, when you talk about progressive sanctification, if you want to consider all the ways the word sanctification, hagiosmos, is used in the New Testament, you need to qualify it with the word progressive. But shorthand in the church today, when we use the word sanctification, we're usually referring to this one. You can put a little star by it. You hear the word sanctification. In most contexts within the church function and church life and discipleship and preaching, when you hear the word sanctification, we're distinguishing this from positional sanctification, which you could simply refer to as justification or being set apart as a Christian. And now we're talking about being set apart, not from the lost world judicially or legally to be God's kids, but being set apart from their behavior. Let's look at some passages on the screen. 1 Peter 1.14, as obedient children. Okay, now I'm thinking of my behavior. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't live like you were before. You're a child of God. That means you're already positionally sanctified. But now, he says, as you were, but as he who called you is set apart, hagios, you also be hagios in all your conduct. Now, all the other passages we've looked at in terms of positional sanctification, it was done to me. It was done by God. It was done legally. It was done because of Christ. It was done by the means of the Holy Spirit. It was done instantaneously. It was done at one point in time. Now he's saying, hey, Christians that have been set apart positionally, you have to live holy lives. That involves decisions of obedience. And that obedience, to the extent that you are obedient children, you are being set apart in your conduct. That's a different kind of sanctification. Since it is written, he quotes the Old Testament, be holy for I am holy. He doesn't say, I've chosen you out from the nations. He's quoting Leviticus here. And you are my people. God says that a lot in the Old Testament. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, be holy in what you do. Now, act in the way that I would act in those circumstances. Reflect my, what we call, communicable attributes. The things that I am, faithful, just, 
honest, you know, all the things that God is. You be those things, those that can be communicated from deity to human beings. For just as if you call on him who is a father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's deeds, that's what this sanctification is all about, then you ought to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You're living down here. You've got to behave in a holy way. So the question, if you're just going to use the word hagios or hagiosmos, if I said, are you holy? You'd have to say, which holy are you talking about? It's like baptism. Uh, you know, does, does baptism save you? Or if I say that question, you say, well, which one? If I say, are you holy? You'd have to ask which one, right? I'm not perfectly holy in my behavior, but I am completely holy in my status. I'm set apart. One is my position in relationship to God. One is my behavior and how I live like Christ. That distinction has to be clear in your thinking or you'll read the Bible and be confused. And unfortunately, a lot of people are very confused on this topic and they discount all the passages that relate to progressive sanctification. You can see why we use the word progressive because five years ago, I trust you weren't as holy in all your behavior as you are now. You are progressing in your holiness. You are progressing in being more like Christ. One of the best passages on this, I would love for you to turn to it actually, First Thessalonians can you read that? It's been a lot better since we put those new projectors in, hasn't it? Is that clear? Can you read that? Is the font too small in the back? It's awesome. That is so awesome. First Thessalonians 4. This is the will of God. Now think about this. For this is the will of God. This is what God wants for you. This is his desire. This is his plan for you. Your sanctification. There's our word, hagiosmos, that you would be holy. What does that mean? Let's define it. That's why in English we translate it here with a, with a, with a semicolon. No, a colon. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That's the topic on the table in the mind of the Apostle Paul as he writes this. Be sexually holy. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness. There it is, hagios, and honor. Not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. but one And the one who transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter. Because the Lord see to it that no one does that. Wrongs his brother in this matter. Don't sleep with your neighbor's wife. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. You've got a decision to make regarding your sexual purity. And if you make the wrong decision, God is an avenger of these things. His will for you is sanctification. For God has not called us to impurity but to hagios, holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God. Now here's the connection to the spirit of God who gives the Holy Spirit to you. Do you see now, if you don't just think of that as a name, you think of it as a description. The spirit of God is a holy spirit. Now look at the passage and think about if you were reading Greek here, for this is the will of God for you, your hagiosmos, that you know how to control your body in hagios, in holiness, that he hasn't called you, he says to impurity, but in hagios. Therefore, whoever disregards this doesn't disregard man, disregards God who gave you the hagios spirit. This is all about behavior. This is all about your decisions. This is all about your obedience. This is all about what you do with your life this week, this month, this year. That is what we describe as progressive sanctification. It's God's will for you. So when you think about holiness, or if you want to use the word sanctification, as they do in theological debates, the question of sanctification has to be distinguished. Is it the use in the Bible, much like baptism, used in very different ways? Is it the use that we're talking about in terms of my once and for all change of status to become a child of God? Or are you talking about, am I becoming more holy in my behavior? Make that distinction in your mind, and we're very clear then uh, about what we're talking about. In this case, tonight, we're talking about number three, progressive sanctification. 
But as long as we're talking about this, and usually when I talk about it, that's where I stop, there's another use of the word hagiosmos in the Bible that I want to at least underscore tonight for the sake of completeness, and that is final sanctification. Final. Sometimes people, just for the sake of alliteration, uh, like to say, like, uh, prospective, prospective sanctification. But all we're talking about there is final sanctification. If you get to the end of the book of 1 Thessalonians, he says this, which may be debatable as to what he's referring to, but I'll give you another passage that's super clear. But at the end of the book, he says, now may God, this is his hope and his prayer, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Now, if you're a Wesleyan, right, and you believe that you can become perfectly holy in this life, I mean, that fits your, your, your view. But as we understand, we're going to struggle in our sanctification and not be perfectly sanctified until we see Christ. So with that grid, as we understand, which I think is the right grid, we're going to recognize when that's going to happen. He's going to sanctify me completely, and my whole spirit and soul and body will be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. I may not be perfect, but at that point, I'm going to reach final sanctification. He's going to, he's going to ensure it. Uh, he who calls you is faithful. He surely will do it. He's faithful. He's made a promise. What promise did he make? Promises like this. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. We have been set apart. Hagiosmos in my identity. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us, because it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. You have been set apart. You have been sanctified. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Oh, our progressive sanctification, that's not complete yet. But we know that when he appears, that's on the time you know line here, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's final sanctification. I have been set apart positionally because I'm a child of God. Agiosmos, called out from the world, set apart for God, set apart as, as a child of God. I am now progressing in sanctification because what I will be has not yet been realized, has not yet been seen. But when I see him, I'm going to be like him. That's final sanctification. And by the way, if you would focus on that, it says everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself, ongoing, continual tense here in Greek. It, you're going to purify yourself as he is pure. There is the process, again, of progressive sanctification. So that's final sanctification in the middle of a discussion that both includes, without the word being used, positional sanctification and progressive sanctification. And one day we look forward to, don't you, final sanctification. We're going to be there eventually. Okay? One, two, three, four. Letter B. As we think about this, and if we're going to have any kind of lecture on pneumatology, we're going to get around to this. And that is what is, for many people, the central passage in the Holy Spirit's involvement in our sanctification. But we need to be careful when we use this passage, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, because it has dual use in the Bible. Here's the passage, and you know it. And most people would say, if you want to talk about the Holy Spirit and your sanctification, here's the central passage. Don't get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. But here it is, if you want it in a phrase, and I've read it even this week, the truncated one phrase goal for your sanctification is this, be filled with the Spirit. Now, if you just look at that, pull our up. Plerao, a short O and a long O, which you can't see in English, but there it is, is to fill. You would say, well, a general reference to being filled with the Spirit, which is a spatial analogy, is a reference to indwelling. And you would look in the Bible and you'd find it that way. Luke one fifteen, he will be, speaking of John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Spirit. What we understand that to mean is that he is going to be indwelt by the Spirit because he's making no conscious decisions as a little baby in, you know, in utero. So he, what does that mean? He has the kind of new covenant relationship with the Holy Spirit being indwelt by the Spirit from the time of his conception, which is a bizarre statement, but that's 
what's being described. In Acts 2, now we see the church begin. Now everybody else gets filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. What is that? That was the promise. The Spirit is with you, but then he will be, plureo, if you're going to put it in terms of what the process is, you're going to be filled with the Spirit. That's the word used here. And therefore, the Spirit is in you. Epsilon nu, it is in you. That is a spatial analogy. He doesn't take up any space in your body. You know that. You need to think through that phrase and say, what that means is a new kind of permanent connection with the Spirit. And that is described by the phrase, being filled with the Spirit. And that is the general reference to the phrase. That is not what's going on in Ephesians 5. And that's why it's a bit confusing, and you need to make that clear notation in your mind. Just like sanctification is used in two primary ways, although we noted three, when it comes to being filled with the Spirit, that's used in two different ways. Now, the ones that Christians like to focus on is the one that we find in Ephesians 5.18, but that's not talking about indwelling Because all the people that are commanded in Ephesians 5.18 are already indwelt by the Spirit. So it's not asking you to be indwelt by the Spirit again. You'd come up with a lot of bad theology if that's what you thought it was saying. That's not what it's saying. So let's look at what it is saying in Ephesians 5. It is a contrasting analogy. It's not just a, a spatial analogy saying you need to be filled with the Spirit, which means have a permanent indwelling relationship with the Spirit. It's not what it's saying. This is an analogy of drunkenness. Now think about this. It's saying, don't get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. What's the phrase that you might even find in the Bible? To be full of wine or filled with wine. What does that mean? Being drunk. Now he's contrasting being drunk with being filled with the Spirit. Now the end result is completely different. While there's a parallel in how the verb is used, the end result obviously is contrasted. That's why I call the contrasting analogy. Completely different. If you're drunk, you won't demonstrate the goals of the Spirit for your sanctification. But the idea is, as we've seen, matter of fact, we should look at the context in Ephesians 5.18. The picture of this is what the Spirit does in my life by way of, and we use these words when we were looking one week in our study, in terms of influence, impact. It does things in, he does things in our lives akin to what you see going on in the life of a drunkard when he has his alcohol. It changes the behavior of that person. And so it is in this analogy. Now look at the context. Let's start in verse 8. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. This is Ephesians 5.8. Walk now as children of light, for the fruit of light, these are all analogies obviously, is found in all that is good and right and true. Now that's not an analogy. That's what I'm shooting for. I want to do things tonight and tomorrow that are good, that are right, that represent and express truth. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Think that through. Figure it out when you make those decisions about good and right and true. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead your calling as ambassadors of Christ and evangelists is to expose them. That's what the Spirit wants to do. wants to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You are the ambassador, the spokesman, the messenger of that. Verse 12. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. We're against it. We're not going to joke about it. He's already talked about that in this book. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There's our message to a lost world, though poetically stated. Look carefully, then, how you walk, 
Careful how you live, your decisions. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. If you catch the flavor of this, what is it? I'm living in a non-Christian world. I shouldn't be like them. We could go all the way back to chapter 4 to see this. I need to live differently. I need to live a holy life. I need to make decisions that reflect the, the, the values of Scripture, the ethics of Scripture, the virtues of Scripture. I need to do the things that God wants me to do that would reflect Christ's likeness. The world's not like that. There's two paths here. So I've got to be careful, and I've got to make wise decisions. Now, therefore, verse 17, don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Well, that's to do all the things you said, good, right, true. Do not get drunk with wine, which would be one expression, I suppose, which he's going to pull out just by way, uh, for the sake, rather, of, of analogy, of a contrasting analogy. But he says, don't do that kind of thing. Drunkenness is obviously sin. That's debauchery. But like someone would be influenced by alcohol, you be filled with the Spirit. Ongoing command, not a one-time event. As we said in our chart weeks back, this is the, the real exception to all the other phrases that we toss around. Being baptized, being indwelt, all of that. Here's one that's supposed to happen all the time. I'm supposed to seek to do this all the time as a regular recurring event in my life. Some of the expressions of that aren't going around stumbling and stammering, but addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I'm much more interested in reveling in good and godly things, singing and making melody to the Lord in my heart. I'm thinking about God. I'm praising him in my own heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. All those things I did not do as a non-Christian, those are the things that should characterize my life and the way it's described, and we'll look at the details of this later, but we're just analyzing the, the phrase, and that is to be filled with the Spirit, plurao, to be filled with the Spirit. Note that. We'll get back to all the implications of that. Another term, letter C, an illustrative term in Galatians 5.16. Here's the phrase. We'll look at the context so you can turn there if you get a chance. And that is this phrase. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. What's the context of Ephesians 5? Living godly lives. What is that? My sanctification. The key to that is my, quote unquote, being filled with the Spirit, which is a contrasting analogy to what alcohol might do to influence and impact your behavior. The Spirit wants to influence and impact my behavior. More on that later. Now the word used here is walk by the Spirit, another way to describe the Spirit's work in my sanctification, and you won't do all those things. Peripateo, which is a fun Greek word to say, but I I like it because it's got two components and it may be helpful when you think about Paul's use of the word walk. He loves the word peripateo. He says it all the time, writes it all the time. Walk. I mean, if you just analyze his letters and look for the word peripateo, he loves to use that as a description of our sanctification. Peri is the Greek preposition around. If you build your little prepositional chart, which most of us learn languages that way, all the prepositions, and Greek has many, and they're all very descriptive, the one that's around the circle is peri, around. Peri, compound word, pateo. Pateo is the word to to tread, to walk, to to go around, right? Or to, to be pedestrian. Peripateo is a word that you could use the word pateo if you just wanted to think about walk, but he's thinking about the pattern of your life, how you live. Now, you need to live the pattern of your life and walk around by the Spirit. Well, that sounds mystical. It's really not in this text. His, let's turn there, if you haven't already, Galatians 5. I like to call it, in context here, his paths. What are the paths of the Spirit? Every day I've got decisions and choices to make. And he's contrasting things that I would do without the influence and impact of the Spirit. But the Spirit, I want to follow in his paths. What are those? 
Well, if I think about what the flesh wants, verse 17, this is Galatians 5, 17. I mean, verse 16, we just read. I say, walk by the Spirit. You won't gratify the desires of your flesh. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh, they're against the Spirit. They're two different paths to walk around in. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They're contrasting pathways. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, more on that later, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh, the things that come out of the flesh, the things that the flesh wants to do, those are evident. They should be obvious. Things like sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And I warn you, as I warned you before, he's talking to Christians now, those that do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying, if your life is characterized by that, where's the spirit of God in your life? Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, the outcome of the Spirit, the things that the Spirit's paths are all about is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, we could analyze that, and we have in the past, but the idea is two paths, paths every day, and everything that I encounter, there's the path of doing whatever my flesh desires, which usually is something that is self-serving, wrong, and will result in all kinds of things that are against the law of God. But then there's the path of the Spirit. And I'm saying, in this text, walk in His path. Peripateo, as I go about my day, I'm doing things that reflect the desires and the values and the virtues of the Spirit. More on the details of all that later. We're just defining terms. One more in this passage. We stop short of this verse, Galatians 5, uh, 25. Here's the phrase. This is interesting, and it's another phrase, stoikeo. We'll look at that in a second. But here's how it's translated, three words in English. If we live by the Spirit, let us also, stoikeo, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Here's the Greek word. It is a military word, a military term in Galatians 5, 25. We've just come out of this, the paths. This is going to be our transition verse, because now we're going to look at how this works. But if I think about my life as a Christian, I know the goals of God is to change my life in my behavior from being disobedient to to increasingly obedient. Less like, as I like to say, my old self and more like Christ. I'm called to be set apart from the world and not live like the world, not think like the world, not speak like the world, and the things that they do that displease God. The Spirit of God is going to influence and impact me like alcohol would influence and impact a drunkard because Spirit's got paths that he wants me to walk in, and I need to walk in those paths. Peripateo. Now he says, if we live by the Spirit, if you have the Spirit of God in you, let us also stoikeo, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now, I couldn't help with that word to use a a band geek illustration because I'm not ashamed of that. I was in the marching band. We just happened to be one of the best bands in the state. Oh, thank you. You played in the band. You're just, you're just afraid to admit it, some of you. When we were in this marching band, we had, I don't know, 180 people in our band, which, you know, we didn't really love. We, we went on to other things. But when football season, we had to be the marching band. So out we went as the marching band. And when you marched in the band, I think the exception of my first year, I, was, uh, I marched on the end. The guides were on the end. And your responsibility was to keep everybody in your row in step. And so you would yell out, at least we would in our band, if anybody got out of step, I don't know why we'd use this phrase, but we'd say, guide up. You've got to guide up. You're out of step. 
You're either walking too quickly, you're marching too quickly, you're marching too slowly, you're, you're out of step. Some of those guys took a long time to learn how to march in marching band. But we would always have the responsibility as the guide on the end to be yelling, which is how it worked in high school and I'm sure in the military, yelling at the people who couldn't get it right to get in line. Keep watch on your life. Stay in step. That's the relationship of guide and marcher. The guide wants to keep us in step, and our job as a marcher in the Christian life, if you will, is to make sure that we're constantly guiding up with the guide. He wants us to be in step, stoicheo, with him. These are the words. That's a military word, which works in the marching band, I suppose, since we're not in wartime and I've never been in the army. That's the idea. Great. Now, let's flip the page over and let's get into the details of how that works. With those words in our minds, let's try and make sense of how this works in our daily lives. We know the idea. Sanctification is the goal, to be less sinful this week and more righteous this week in my behavior. The Spirit of God is the key to this. His work in my sanctification, which is the second half of our outline tonight, we need to understand how that works. We've got some descriptive terms. As a contrast to drunkenness, the Spirit of God is supposed to somehow, within my life, influence and impact me to make these decisions. He's got paths. I'm supposed to walk in those paths, and he is going to be working to guide me up in the things that I do, to stay in step with him. Okay, let's start with the Holy Spirit's words. Obviously, this is the major, clear, obvious part of the Christian life that I hope the minute you became a Christian, someone shoved a Bible in your hand and said, get, you know, get to work in reading the book. Obviously, the Bible is his book. You don't even hardly need to I mean, write this down. You, you know this text. We, we've quoted it several times, both in bibliology and in pneumatology, and that is 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. We, we know that the prophecy of Scripture doesn't come from someone's interpretation. They weren't sitting around on a rock thinking, I wonder what God's all about. I'm going to write a few things down about it, and we've got the best thoughts of men about God. That's not the Bible. No, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the picture. We could go in to, to describe and understand that for hours, but that's the summary statement of the Spirit who actually was working through David, through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul, and the end result was his word. They are, as it's put, in, as Paul says to Timothy, they are God-breathed words. Second uh, Timothy 3.16, they are as though God spoke them himself. He used these human authors to create a book, and the end result is his word to you and to me. That is where we start. That's why, by the way, if you're not reading the Bible, good luck with having the Spirit of God make you increasingly like Christ. You're not reading his book. You're not reading his instructions. Number two, the non-Christian can read the Bible and have no sanctification take place at all. Because the Bible makes a big deal out of this, and that is that he gives us understanding. In this passage, I want you to turn to because I don't have room for it on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, or uh, verse 6, 2, 6 through 14. Now, when you read this, it's often misunderstood because everyone likes to read this as though they are the we of the text. You are not the we of the text. The we of the text is Paul and the other apostles. They're the we of the text. But the ones that he's speaking to... That we can identify with because like the Corinthians, we're like, we're like them. We're the recipients of the apostles' God-breathed ministry. So let's look at this text. Verse 6. World doesn't get it, but he says, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. We've got some information, knowledge, wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed, by the way, to pass away, but we impart 
This sounds mystical here, but all it means is it wasn't revealed any other way. It's secret. It's hidden. It's hidden wisdom of God. You don't get it unless God reveals it, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. He wants to communicate, and he has through his prophets and apostles. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, uh, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Though we often think of that, and it's true regarding eschatology, this is about bibliology. Keep reading. These things God has revealed to us. So when we say, wow, we can't even imagine what God's going to do, that's true, but that's not what this text is saying. This text is saying the things that we wouldn't know unless they were revealed, they were secret and they were hidden, they've been revealed. They were revealed to us. Now, that's not you and me. We are the second-tier recipients. They were the first-tier recipients, the apostles, through the Spirit. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Verse 11, for who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of the person, which is in him. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. He's using the word and the analogy and the picture of this information being hidden. God has to reveal it. So God reveals it. He reveals it through the prophets and the apostles. We impart this. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 12. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, the apostles haven't, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand things freely given to us by God. Now, we're still talking about the apostles. Verse 13, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. I know we always quote God-breathed words from 2 Timothy three sixteen, but here's the same idea, that God is imparting this information, revelation, and he is now The apostles are preaching this, teaching this, and writing it through, not through human wisdom, but the wisdom that's taught by the Spirit. They're interpreting spiritual truths. Now, here's where we come in, to those who are spiritual. So we've got to have the Spirit. They bring that truth to us now that they're dead in the the product of the Bible. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. Unless God's involved, you can throw a Bible in the hand of someone and it's going to be it's going to be nonsense, foolishness. They don't get it. They don't get the perceived purpose of the passages and the verses. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's the idea of us being reliant on the Spirit for the knowledge that God wants to impart through, in our case, the pen of the apostles and prophets. That's why some of you, by the way, have revealed that you're not saved by trying to do the daily Bible reading or whatever, and you read it, and it's nothing to you because it's spiritually discerned. And if you don't have the Spirit of God, the Spirit who gives you understanding to the text, and, and it becomes life to you, Peter says it's like milk to a baby, that is the difference between Christians and non-Christians. So all I'm saying, I guess by way of practical information, you want to be sanctified, you'd better read the Bible, and it wouldn't hurt you to start with acknowledging something you may not always acknowledge when you read the Bible, and that is you're desperately dependent on the Spirit of God. And you should start your, your prayer time or your reading time with prayer time. At least let's acknowledge that. God, give me understanding. To use the words of Psalm 119.8, how about this prayer? Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. That's the way David put it, who I believe wrote Psalm 119, though it's not specifically stated. That passage is a helpful one for us, though the Spirit's not mentioned. We understand from 1 Corinthians 2, it is the Spirit that is the agency of that understanding. We need to grow. You want to put behind you the sins that so easily entangle you and trip you up? You need to get into the Word and you need to pray that God would give you understanding because that's His method to sanctify you, to make you more like Christ. He gives understanding to the Word that He wrote.
Now, let's move from that, which is very objective, and it's written, it's black and white, it's propositional, it's easy for us at least to see that, because we've all read something, if you're a Christian, and you've understood it, and God has enlightened your mind, and you get it, you apply it, it changes your life. But let's talk now about the Holy Spirit's convictions, letter B. The convictions of the Spirit, now this is where we start to get into areas of, that are hotly debated, but I think I can make this statement without a lot of controversy. And that is that when you experience the Spirit's work in your, in your life regarding sanctification, it feels a lot like something every non-Christian knows and you knew before you became a Christian, and that is the feeling of the conviction of conscience. It feels akin to a conscience. I put this up on the screen for you. You know the passage I trust. I should stop saying that. Some of you are, don't know any of these passages, I, I assume. A couple of you. I'm going to still say that probably. I can't, can't change that habit because I'm assuming you know this. These are central texts here. Romans 2.14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature what the law requires. Law says you shouldn't spend all day lusting after your neighbor's wife. You shouldn't be coveting his, his herds. Those are things that are spelled out in the law, but here are the non-Christians who never read the law and they feel guilty about that. They start to say, wow, that's not right. I feel that that's not right. I'm going to stop doing that. So the Gentiles, speaking now in contrast to the Jews who have the law, they're doing by nature the things the law requires. They become a law unto themselves. Well, where do they get that knowledge? Even though they don't have the law, they show by that activity that the work of the law is written on their hearts. That's kind of a caricature. It's an analogy. It's a picture. It's an illustration. There's no words on their, you know, on their heart, but you get it. That's, that's the idea of conscience. They have rules that are built into their spirit. Their conscience bears witness. There's the picture. There is a law book that God has written that expresses his perfect character. And as those attributes are communicable, they can be played out in the lives of human beings. The spirit of God has written within the software of human beings things that make you feel bad when you do the wrong thing and make you feel good when you do the right thing. And that's called your conscience. And the Bible says that's bearing witness to the rule book of God in their conflicting thoughts. They, can, they accuse and even excuse. And I like the way the ESV makes that rhyme. You have times when your conscience excuses you because you said, I know I did the right thing there, even though the guy yelled at me on the freeway. I did the right thing. And you accuse, oh, I did the wrong thing. I shouldn't have done that. That feeling of accusing and excusing, that's something that we all have experienced. And he says, on the day that they're going to be judged, it'll be clear God is going to judge the secrets of men's hearts. And all of that accusing and excusing is going on in their hearts. And as the passage started, by the way, in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, if you're able to see the wrong in other people's lives, it shows that you have enough information. You should be able to apply that to yourself. And that accusing and excusing, you may think that you're okay and rationalizing your behavior, but you know because of the software in your heart that God has written that you have done wrong. Therefore, for you're without excuse, which is the theme that began in chapter one of Romans. What's the point? You know what that's like to have a guilty conscience. That feeling of accusing you is what the spirit feels like. And you've all felt that. Let's talk about this a little bit more in terms of number two, that your conscience can be wrongly conditioned. I'm trying to say this for the sake of contrast to the spirit. The spirit is independent of you. He may dwell in you as a Christian, but he's not you. You have a thing called a conscience. At least it's a description of a function in your spirit, your software. And that is something you, have, you can tinker with and you can mess with. And you can so rewire that and so mess with that that you have a different experience with your conscience because you have some control over that, to put it in human terms. But you cannot control the spirit and what he wants to accuse you of or excuse you of. 
but your conscience you can tinker with. Conscience may be wrongly conditioned. I'll give you two examples, non-Christians. Uh, Titus 1.15, to the pure all things are pure. In other words, they're not always seeing the nasty side or the bad side of things. But to the defiled, right, and the unbelieving, nothing's pure. They twist everything. Why? They don't have the, they don't have the filter. Their minds, it says, both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They're defective. The way they think, they think everything's a joke and everything can be turned into something bad. And, and they do all the things that God disapproves of that are unpure and, and unholy. And they excuse themselves from doing that. Why? I thought their conscience was supposed to accuse them when they do wrong. Well, it's supposed to, but they've defiled their conscience. Their minds and their consciences are twisted and they're defiled. Now, remember, Romans 2 is about non-Christians who can have a conscience and respond to it in circumstances and obey their conscience from time to time, right? I know theologically and soteriologically, no one, you know, is, is righteous before God. But in, in, in the sense that a neighbor can refrain from bedding down with his neighbor's wife, he can say no to that temptation and be excused in his conscience and do what his conscience dictates. Here, the people that seem to have no conscience have by their decisions and their activities defiled it. Their minds are twisted, their conscience are defiled. Okay, well, I'm not talking to non-Christians, at least not too many of them, I hope, here tonight. I'm talking to Christians. Your conscience can be defiled as well. At least it can be wrongly conditioned. He's talking about meat sacrifice to idols in this passage. Notice this now. However, not all possess this knowledge that it's really no big deal. But some, through former association with idols, you started making, you know, Pavlov's dogs here. You had a connection in your behavior that that's bad. They eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak, that's how it's described here, is defiled. At least in that particular sense, it's messed up. So as a Christian here in Corinth, they don't want to eat the meat that's sold in the marketplace that was ceremonially offered to an idol. Paul's just making the case the idol's nothing. It's, who cares? You're not going into a, into a worship service. You're not worshiping at a false altar. You're just eating meat that's on sale at the Costco, and it just happened to be ritually offered. Just eat it. Stop asking questions. But some people, because their conscience is conditioned, that conscience won't allow that. And what did the Bible say about that? Well, Paul's already made it clear. It's nothing, right? The, the fullness of the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, and the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. He says, food isn't going to condemn us to God. Come on. Uh, we're not worse off if we do not eat it, and we're not better off if we do. Now, that's the truth. That's what the Holy Spirit would affirm. He wrote this text through the pen of the apostle, but their conscience doesn't line up with it. The independence of the Spirit needs to be noted. Your conscience, though it feels a lot like the Spirit in excusing and accusing, the Spirit of God is independent of that. The Spirit of God will always have the objectivity that your conscience doesn't always have. Now, by the way, this is a sidebar here. Got a little bit of time, I suppose. You'll notice if you read all the passages on conscience in the New Testament as it relates to Christians' consciences. Non-Christians are always bagging on the conscience being bad and defiled and look at how they condition it and they feel good and they justify themselves for doing wrong and all of that. But when it comes to Christians, Paul goes to great lengths even with people with weak consciences. And he says, you know, be careful with that. Don't teach people to defile their conscience. Matter of fact, that's what this text goes on to say. Don't be trying to get people to do something against their conscience, even though your conscience may be wrong. The idea is, we're not talking about issues of right and wrong as it relates to meat sacrifice to idols because it doesn't matter what you ate today. It just matters that you really get in the process of not violating your conscience. And therefore, you'll see, and it's kind of a subset of, of our sanctification to study the conscience and to recognize that we need to really be sensitive to the conscience in part because it feels so much like the Spirit's work in our lives of excusing and accusing. So I don't want to get in the habit of internally fighting that system that's supposed to help me navigate right and wrong. 
that may not be necessary, but if you read all the passages on conscience, you'll say, man, Paul seems to bend over backwards to kind of let these people go along with their weak conscience. Like in Romans 14, right? With the whole issue of vegetables or the day of worship, he seems to be, well, okay, whatever. Let every man be fully convinced in his own. Why doesn't he take the weak conscience persons and beat them up and say, listen, don't you know that doesn't matter to God? Well, he says that, but he goes on to say, you know, don't defile someone else's conscience. All right, that had not a lot to do with what we're talking about. Let's keep going here. Spirit's conviction. Here's where we get into more of the meat of what we need to talk about. Pardon the pun. Huh. Amuse myself at times. Number three. Let's call it, for the lack of a better phrase, and I had a lot of long phrases spelled out, but this is a short shorthand for it, and that is let's talk about reciprocal impact. Reciprocal impact between my life and the Holy Spirit. We have impact on one another. I have an impact, believe it or not, on the Holy Spirit. Can't change him. Can't change his standards. Certainly can't change his behavior. But I can change his emotions. And that text is classic, and we need to look at it together. Ephesians 4. As you read this text with me and you look it over as I read it for you, beginning in verse 25, you'll see in Ephesians chapter 4 the sensibilities of the Spirit. That's a good phrase. The sensibilities of the Spirit, the things that offend the Spirit, the things that, here's the passage, it uses the word grieves the Spirit. You'll notice the sensibilities of the Spirit are always tied to the book that he wrote. Now, it goes beyond that, as we'll see, but we're always in passages like this, beginning with things that are clearly in black and white in the Bible. And when I don't do what he has written in his book because he dwells within me and we have a relationship and he lives within me, so to speak, I mean, he is, I understand that's biblical language, but it's a spatial analogy, that connection to the Holy Spirit, when I don't do what he wrote, when I don't do what he says, we've got relational problems and my behavior impacts him. Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, I mean, you got to go back to the beginning, right? Exodus 20, it's the don't bear false witness. I'm supposed to tell the truth. I'm supposed to be honest. I got to stop doing that as a Christian. Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For you are members of one another. That's how he starts. He appeals to the fact that, man, why would we want to lie to our fellow Christian? Verse 26, be angry. I understand there's times you're going to be angry. It's even commanded here. You can't not be angry as a, as a Christian because the world's filled with problems. But the problem with anger is it usually leads to sin. So be angry and do not sin. And don't harbor bitterness and hostility in your heart. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. If something's wrong, see what you can do to fix it. If you can't fix it, entrust it to God and stop being angry. Verse 27, give no opportunity to the devil. Because if you're a brooder, by the way, and you like to keep your anger and simmer on it, Satan loves to take that and get you to do all kinds of sinful things. Get over your anger quickly. That's an idiom, of course. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't go, oh man, I got five minutes till sunset. I got No, just don't get over your anger quickly and move on. Let the thief steal no longer. Again, is that clear in the, in the law? We go back to the beginning of the Pentateuch. Yeah, don't steal. But rather, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. And by the way, I should, well, I got no time for this, but I'm sick and tired of the youth of, our gen, of this generation talking about finding jobs that fulfill them and that make their lives complete. And I found myself. After college, they got to go tour the world, by the way, and you know, hike the, 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 the Appalachian Mountains or go overseas. I got to tour Europe. I got to do some travel. All of that stuff, by the way. Then they come back and they want to get a perfect job that feels so good. Nonsense, by the way. If you get a great job, that's great. But here the Bible says, listen, the point is getting honest work. The quid pro quo of just doing something that's legal and good and doing it with all your might and getting a paycheck for it. That's what matters. 
find some honest work and do it well so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Yeah, gainfully employed is good. Now I can be generous. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Now I'm moving from some of the black and whites of the propositions and commands of the Old Testament to things that become, begin much more subtle. Was that corrupting? Was that something that helped? Did it edify? Which he says next. But only such as is good for edification. That's what the word translates here. Building up. It, it, it helps people. It's constructive. It, it fits the occasion. Now think about that. I know when I'm lying because it's not in keeping with reality and the truth. Now, I mean, the spirit's going to become central in this text. But right now, I'm thinking. Now, I got to figure out: is this? Is this? I got to discern: is this building up? Is this constructive? Was this wasted words? Were these, you know, words that in some way tore someone down? I mean, that goes beyond the quote-unquote letter of the law to trying to figure out and discern the good and excellent things, the things that please the Lord that it may give grace to those who hear. That's a whole other level of careful living. And here's the central concern for us tonight. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, I can think about lying and say, if I grieve the Spirit of God, duh, he wrote in a book not to do that. He also told us, though, by the way, to do things that have to be evaluated. They have to be discerned. I have to figure out whether this is the right thing to say, the right thing to do, the right thing to preach on in my case, the right kind of counsel to give. I have to make those decisions, not between right and wrong, but also between better and best. I got to make decisions. I want to do the best things, the things that are pleasing to the Lord to find out what the perfect will of God is. And by that, I mean the ideas of things that are excellent, things that compare between more building up and not building up, fitting the occasion better or not fitting the occasion as well. I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. If I don't live with that kind of thought, I, I, I got a problem, which by the way, I'm sealed. I'm, I mean, we always see that as a positive, but in this case, if I'm thinking about it, I can't get away from my roommate. He's in my life, and I've got to please him. He wants to see me be more like Christ, who's always saying the things that fit the occasion and are good for building up. And let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. Look at that. You don't find those kinds of detailed, nuanced words in the Old Testament. I mean, now we're getting into parts of my life I've got to discern and carefully think through, along with all malice, every kind of malice. That's a kind of what I like to call in the old translations a circumspect life that I need help figuring out. What do I do here? What do I say? That reciprocal impact of, the, of my life grieving him, my life, as you could use the word, I suppose, uh, over in First Thess, quenching his work in my life, the progress, he wants to lead me down a path. He wants to say, guide up here, walk, walk in step here, move up, make this work, step this way, and, and I, can, I can grieve him by my behavior. He's trying, though, as we've seen in the word study, He's trying to get me to change my behavior, not just to avoid sin, which if you want to find out where this is controversial, there are two camps today that say all that matters is keeping the law of God and then do whatever you want. I'm going to, going to challenge that thinking tonight by saying when it comes to my relationship with the Spirit and sanctification, it goes beyond just making sure I don't lie today, making sure I tell the truth. It comes into the place of my relationship with the Spirit, trying to make sure that I'm doing the best things. More on this in a minute. The Spirit's leadership. I don't want to, with my behavior, grieve him, which is more than just doing something that is obviously blatantly wrong. I want to learn to be more Christ-like. Therefore, I need to defer to his leadership. Let's just talk about it in terms of the word stated in terms of being led by the Spirit. A classic text, Romans 8, 13, and 14. We could look at others, but I'll just give you one for your notes. If you're living according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you'll live. For all who are, here's the phrase, led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
So a minimum require of my life is I'm going to have the Spirit indwelling me, and now he's going to say, guide up, walk here, walk on this path, forsake that, put to death the deeds that, of the body, as we could say in Galatians 5, the fruit or the, the expression of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, all those things. I now need to let him lead me. I need to follow his cues. I need to respond, much like I would be afraid to grieve him because he would convict me in those situations. He needs to also now lead me. I'm, I need to be, and this is where it gets dangerous in, in our circles, I need to be prompted to do the things that are best. I need to, to be prompted by his influence in my life to do the things that are excellent, to use the words of Scripture, which we'll get to, getting ahead of myself. Here's some words. In the book of Acts, just as an example, and, and again, the debate rages on whether or not this should be seen as normative, and I'm just using the Apostle Paul because there's a lot of data about his relationship to the Spirit. I know it's different in relation to his role as an apostle in giving us truth and being a prophet, but I think we can not be so afraid of the texts that give us descriptions of his relationship with the Spirit in relation to his planning. Because, as you'll see in his letters, he's often using that as an example or template to the people he writes. I understand this is debated, but let's look at it. My view here. Acts 19.21, for instance. Now, after these events, look at this word now. He resolved. He, uh, the Greek word would have that idea of, he, he's, well, resolved is a good translation, but he's, it comes from the word to bind or to tie. He's, he's, he's tied up some plans. He's made a, a firm decision. Look at now the words, in the spirit. Interesting. What was it? Well, it was a travel plan to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Now, what did the Bible say? What did the Spirit say at the outsetting of, of the church? Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. There's the biblical command. What about his calling? Well, Jesus spoke to him and said, you're going to be my witness. And, and he ends up saying, to the Gentiles and to kings. So he's got general commands, but now it's, where do I go? And, and this text says he's making resolved decisions. But the words that are tacked on here, I think, are helpful for us in the spirit. If the point of being a Christian is to be more Christ-like, at least in our sanctification, that's the goal. And I know that when I get out of step, he's going to convict me and accuse me. And he's going to convict me like my conscience did to stop doing those things. And if I don't listen, he'll discipline me. He also wants to lead me into being that, that productive and fruitful Christian. And as he does that, it's going to be working through my volition and my will. But there's a blending in the way the language is used in the Bible to say, these are some of the resolves he makes in the spirit. Now, we know it's within the realm of the commands of the written Bible, of the, you know, what the Spirit said to the early church. But he's deciding about where to go, to pass through Macedonia or to not pass through Macedonia, to go on to Jerusalem or to go to Rome or not to go to Rome. These things he connects to the Spirit's work in his life. More on this. Hopefully we'll answer some questions here. Acts twenty twenty two. He uses another word here. Now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. Again, this is about travel plans, which is very helpful. The end of 1 Corinthians, the beginning of 2 Corinthians, there's so much about his planning and his relationship to God and how he does that. But look at this text. Constrained by the Spirit. There's the idea again of bound. This is what I got to do. I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm constrained by the Spirit. This is not some word that, you know, some knowledge. I got all the information. I saw a vision. That's not any of this. Not knowing what will happen to me there. This is not some vivid dream that Daniel has by the river. This is the sense of constraint. This is the right thing, and I'm gonna, I am gonna. need to do it. Let's, un, I mean, kind of telescopically unravel more of this. The means. This is where there's a lot of debate in circles like ours. What is the means of this? 
Here's, here's an example, and if you want more on this, you should go through the partner's manual. I think it's chapter 5, our relationship with the Holy Spirit. I give you lots of examples and things to look up. 2 Corinthians 12 and 13. Again, travel plans become the laboratory for this understanding the will of God here. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, he now says there's something going on in the subjective element of my life, my spirit. My spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. Now, it's prompted not by a vision. It's prompted by circumstance. But that circumstance, though there was an open door providentially for him to do ministry, he thought, this doesn't seem like the right thing to do. This does not seem wise. I can't find a spirit, you know, I shouldn't put it that way, a peace in my spirit. I can't find that. So I took leave of them, and I left the open door. I didn't walk through it, and I went on to Macedonia. That, I believe, at least is the arena through which the Spirit, if we're going to move beyond the right and wrong to the better and best, without being paralyzed by any of that, but by recognizing that I want to find out what's pleasing to the Lord, I'm going to have to, to understand there's some interpretation here of my Spirit, because the Spirit of God is going to impact my Spirit. Now, this is where a lot of people, and a lot of people you highly respect, will completely toss that out and say no. Or if you're a follower of Greg Kokel or you've read Friesen's books, you know, these are the guys that say, ah, there's no room for that. Let me give you a couple of things. One would be Psalm 19. When people start to say, well, that should have no part in, in the will of God or in my sanctification. You should just look at what the Bible says if it's right. For instance, like you can't be yoked with an unbeliever, therefore I can't marry a non-Christian. The Bible says marry a Christian. Just choose one you like and get married. As opposed to, I should think it would be good. I, I certainly practice this. I, I want to choose between better and best when it comes to that decision. I don't just want to say, well, you know, whatever, whatever, you know. I, and they'll make fun of that, the people that, that oppose my view, and say, well, you're going to be paralyzed, and are you praying about which kind of colored socks to put on this morning and all that. All I'm saying is I understand that while they want to avoid the subjectivity of me trying to read the promptings of the Spirit, I get that concern. I I don't want to turn us all into mystics. But what I am saying is I don't have a biblical barrier put up between God's work in the world and the liability of wrongly reading that work. That's why I had you jot down Psalm 19. Psalm 19 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, they pour forth speech. It's an ongoing lecture from from nature. Night to night, look up in the stars. It reveals knowledge. There's no speech. There are no words. There's no voice that's heard, but their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun and off he goes and talks about all those things. This text says, God creates nature and it speaks continually to mankind. We are we understand God, to rightly discern the glory of God in those things. Now, turn on the Discovery Channel. Have they rightly discerned the glory of God in nature? Answer, no. Why? Because there is an element of getting the wrong impression. Of course, we would say, well, they don't have the Spirit of God and all that. I get all that. But even among Christians, there's a subjectivity to seeing what message is coming from nature in what we would call general revelation to understand what God is saying in that. There's a subjectivity there. And all I'm saying is when the impression in my heart 
is that I can go be a missionary in China. I can go be a missionary in the Middle East. I can continue my pastorate in Orange County. And I want to say, well, whatever, they're all within the realm of what's right and wrong. I'll just do whichever one I want. I do understand that God's going to work through my desires. I'm going to go before God and say, I I want what's best. I want to seek what is pleasing to you. I want to know whether I should go through Macedonia or, or whatever. I want to find that all out. When I discern that, people throw a flag because it's subjective. All I'm saying is here's one example of knowing that God speaks. Clearly, he said he has, and people miss the point. Romans 1, same thing. There's clarity in the speaking in that. In, in that. Let me give you another example. Olivet Discourse. Matthew, no, no, it's not the Olivet Discourse. I'm sorry. It's earlier. Matthew 16. Jesus says this, and he's condemning them because they, they don't recognize the Messiah has come. This is verses 2 and 3, Matthew 16, 2 and 3. He answers these people, and he says, When evening comes, you say, It'll be fair weather, and the sky is red, for the sky is red. In the morning, you'll say, It'll be a stormy day, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Now, they should be able to look at what's going on and see what God is doing, just like they interpret the weather. And God says, you're not getting it. Just like in general revelation, there's a message being sent and people are wrongly perceiving it. And the goal is to rightly perceive what God is saying in nature, even in terms of time and what God is doing. You can go back to Ezra. You can see other examples of this of people that understand the times. Or in this case, why can't you see the signs of the times? You should be able to read that, but you don't read it. All I'm saying is that calls for a kind of wisdom and discernment to discern that rightly. That is what I'm wanting as I interface with the Spirit of God in my life. This is a mitigating view, by the way, and people have challenged me to try and write something on this, between the two views that you'll find in books that are out there. One says, just do whatever the Bible says, and if it doesn't say specifically, just do whatever you want. I mean, that's a summary, and I think some people may think that's a straw man if you have that view. But Then the other, of course, wants you to find every impression and impulse of your life and call that the voice of God. And so you go around church saying, God told me to do this, God told me to do that. I'm saying both of those are not the view that I would hold or teach because I think there's a mitigating view. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't be dogmatic about certain things in terms of the signs of the times or natural revelation. And I would be very cautious about even what I would discern as to what ministry I should do or what what person I should marry. Those I have to carefully discern. And I could be wrong in how I perceive the impulse or direction or leadership in this case of the Spirit. Controversial, I I understand, and perhaps in a few years I can be more articulate in describing that. Let's unpack it further with with this motif, which I know even the Friesen Cocoa guys will use these phrases, and I'm I'm all about it, but I want to take it maybe a little bit further than, than they would. Wisdom to apply biblical principles. The Spirit of God, I'm saying, becomes the agency of me discerning how to apply the Word. And I'm using wisdom not in the sense that Paul used it in 1 Corinthians 2. I'm thinking of wisdom in terms of how it's used in the Old Testament, which is my theology professor used to say in a nice little phrase that stuck with me for decades, and that is, it's the skill of living life. Or as I like to put it, it's the ability to apply the Word of God. I want that wisdom, which in my case, as we've looked at from Ephesians, is trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, moving from what is right and wrong from what is better and best, what is most edifying, what might be corrupting, what might be understood is not wise. That's the kind of thing that we're looking at under this heading. Let me make the connection in a passage on the screen here, Acts 6.3. Therefore, brothers, pick out, this is the, the prototype of the deacons in the church. 
Pick out from among you seven men full of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. The connection there is not, I don't know, maybe as we might think. The connection between the spirit and wisdom is a big one in the Bible, but here's an example of guys that you would say, they're full of the spirit, but what do we mean by that? Do we mean they're Christians and they're indwelt? No, I'm not talking about that. They're filled with the spirit in the sense that we see over here in Ephesians 5, and that is that they are influenced and impacted by not only the condemnation of, I should say, conviction of the spirit when they do wrong, but the prompting and leadership of the spirit to be wise. They make the best decisions. Those are the kinds of guys you want to employ to appoint this work to because they're going to be leaders in the church. So we want them good at applying the word, and they're often choosing best over just better. Spirit and and wisdom. Let's go a little bit more with this. And this is just an example from the ultimate wise person, and that's the Messiah. This is a messianic prophecy, but follow it because I think it's a great example of what I'm talking about. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. It's like the whole nation was chopped off, but here comes a little growth, and it's going to become this great thing. It's, of course, Christ from Jesse, the father of David. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This is, as you remember, the thing we see of, described of Christ in the New Testament. But the idea here is, in the Old Testament, the connection of the spirit resting on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. There's the connection we see often in the Bible. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Keep going. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Not just the law of the Lord. Not just in the right and wrong. He shall not judge by what his eye sees... Now we're talking about the distinguishing and the nuances of what's right here, what's wrong here, what should we do, what should we not do. These are things you can't find in Exodus 20. And decide disputes by what his ear hears, but there's going to be this other thing. With righteousness, he shall judge the poor. Well, so he's just going to pull out the rule book. No, no, no. There's wisdom applied here. He's going to judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He's going to be able to make those wise decisions which is the application of the truth of God and the principles of God beyond just the, well, this is right and this is wrong. Wisdom and the Spirit. Now, again, look at this text. I've quoted it many times. Walk as children of light. The fruit of light is found in what's good, right, and true. Now, that's what I want. Well, what's good as it relates to my job? What's right relating to my my expenditures? What's true related to whatever? Okay, these these can be nuanced and detailed. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That leads me to go to a level in my own life with the spirit in my heart, not only convicting me like the conscience would, but also excusing me, which goes beyond just right and wrong. We've called it leadership, led by the spirit. James 1 and 3, James chapter 1 and James 3. I don't have this one on the board, but you know verse 5 of chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach and will be given to him. This is not a text about opening your Bibles. Now, is wisdom found in the Bible? Absolutely. This seems to go beyond that, and I think it's proven by chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him prove it by quoting Bible verses. That's not what it says. Let him prove it by his good conduct. And again, the word good in Greek is a lot more powerful than it is in our language. And he's got that right teleos kind of conduct. Let him show by his works and the meekness of wisdom. This seems to go beyond just right and wrong. Now, if you have jealousy and ambition in your heart, don't boast and be false to the truth. That's not the wisdom, now notice this, that comes down from above. Now, I know the Spirit's not mentioned in here, but look at the contrast. The kind that they have that is expressed in that way is earthly. It's unspiritual. It's demonic, right? It's from beyond humanity, but it's not not from God's Spirit. 
Because if there's jealousy and selfish ambition, where those exist, there's going to be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom that's from above, the kind that we ask you to ask for in James chapter 1, verse 5, that's pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. If you grabbed all of those words and say, what does that seem to describe? It's not describing, in my mind, the things between right and wrong. It's describing the things between better and best. That's the discernment of wisdom. Where does it come from? Not from demons. It comes from above. Perhaps a veiled way, I would argue, to speak of the wisdom that comes from God's spirit. I want God, who comes from heaven as he dwells in my life in this person of the spirit, to help me do things that are pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That's the interface of my spirit with the spirit of God. Colossians 1, 9 and 10, look at the way Paul prays. And I could quote the beginning of Ephesians as well. He prays the same kind of thing, different words, same idea. We haven't ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. You could say, well, maybe he is talking about don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat. But it seems to go beyond that. In all wisdom, spiritual wisdom, and in understanding, to walk in a manner, there's our peripateo, that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Doesn't that give you the sense that this is beyond just, I stayed out of trouble today? That's the idea of really maximizing my life and reflecting the best of what God wants for my life. That's what we call wisdom, but this is something that comes the participation and submission of my will to the Spirit. Philippians 1, 9, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all, there's our word, discernment, that you may approve what is excellent. There's the phrase I couldn't help but get ahead of myself to keep quoting tonight. I want to approve not what is right versus wrong. I want to approve what's excellent so I can be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, more specifically, through my deference to the leadership of the Spirit in my decision-making. I'm applying biblical principles through the details of my hourly decisions. All right, warnings for the few minutes we have left. I'm not creating mystics. Here's a warning, mysticism. I don't want anybody going around the church saying, God told me. You don't know what God told you. Just like you can't say... You know, go out and and sit on the stump and view a sunset and say, well, the sunset told me. So the impulses and convictions of your heart, I certainly agree that God uses those, but we, we need to go beyond, I mean, we cannot go beyond the constriction that we have in terms of Scripture. And the problem is, in this, is that when people feel God tells them things, it's not the application of the principles of God's Word through the leadership of the Spirit. It's usually these very bizarre shortcuts into, God wants me to sell my house and move to Colorado, and I'm sure of it because I felt some prompting in my heart. Careful with that. There's a lot more to it. We've talked on God's will many times about counsel and all the rest, but I'm I'm trying to avoid mysticism because as books have rightly said, when it's mysticism, it usually will become a pattern of decision-making that will end up trumping the clear teaching of God's word. No time for that. But here's the other problem, evading responsibility. And by that I mean there are people that they sit down and they pray and they wait for a feeling to confirm or deny something. They feel a feeling and they walk away then and say, this is God's will and they don't ever look back. And in that regard, they can blame all their decisions on God and never take responsibility for the decisions, which, of course, in the Bible, we're always held accountable for. I'm going to have to give an account for my decisions. I don't want to say I'm so, you know, confident in my, my, my impressions that I'm not responsible for my decisions. That's God's decision for me. 
You see how that can happen? You hear it a lot. And the other thing, I suppose, to flip that over is taking personal credit in the way that you have sought to follow the Spirit. I just thought this is a good verse for us to end with, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul says, we're being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. There's another way to describe progressive sanctification. He says, for this comes from the Lord, and the Lord we're talking about here, the curios and boss we're talking about, is not the boss enthroned in heaven or the boss seated at his right hand. It's the boss that, that convicts us and prompts us and leads us. It's the Spirit. He's talking about the third person of the Godhead. So even if I become very wise in my Christian life in being very responsive to the Spirit in terms of his conviction and his leadership, I've got to look back and say to the extent that I've walked a path that's avoided the expressions of the flesh and adhered to the, to the path of, of righteousness and the expressions of Christianity that are described by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all the rest, I've got to recognize all of that ultimately in the conundrum of God's sovereignty and through the work that I understand is going on every time I make a decision because God is animating my life, I'm going to say all of this comes from the Spirit. And that, by the way, is where I think some of the controversy is. No one who recognizes the work of sanctification is ever going to, if they're going to follow my teaching at least, give themselves credit for that. That's always the claim. Oh, you're going to credit yourself. We're not going to credit ourselves. We understand that we live and move and have our being in God, more specifically in the Spirit. And all of our sanctification should be credited to the Spirit of God. Let's pray. God, thanks for our night. More than that, I suppose, as we wrap up our series, thanks for this study. So much to talk about and so many things to to discuss, and I, I suppose it's evident, but I pray that it's clear that what we do here on Thursday nights is not definitive. Uh, it is, I hope, something to stir up our thinking and get us to become good students of your word, that it's a prompting and a springboard for us to dig deeper and not just say, oh, we've, we've done it, we've mastered this topic. So God, thanks so much, even that we are limited with our time, which always gives me that sense that there's so much more to do and so much more to say and so much more to explore. But I pray it would give our church here and those that listen to these, whether in person or on the internet or the podcasting or whatever it might be, that they would be just encouraged and motivated. And just all of this would become a catalyst for deeper spiritual growth. And by that, I mean a, a greater study of your word that it might translate into application and increasing sanctification. God, I pray that the things that have talk, been talked about here tonight would bear some fruit. And by that, I'm talking about the things that can be uh, clarified in our own minds so that we could think more accurately about you and we can apply the truths of your word in a way that would bring you glory. And God, for those of us that aren't living circumspectly enough, I'm sure at some some degree all of us can fall under that uh, indictment. I just pray that we'd be more more thoughtful without being paralyzed. I suppose that could have been a fourth warning. We don't ever want to be... Uh, you know, frozen in our analysis of what's going on in terms of our relationship with your spirit. Uh, But let us nevertheless be able to not be just haphazard in our Christian life. Give us a sense of seeking you just in our love for you and our worship of you and our reading of your word and our our honoring of of you in our prayer life. I think of that, God, just how often, uh, even in my own life, just praying for your uh, your insight and your wisdom in my life, and for the fact that I want your spirit to guide and protect and, and empower and do all that needs to be done to lead me in a, in a path that's pleasing to you. And I pray that, God, for all of us to be more thoughtful about that. I know you want to hear from us. I know you want us to pray. I know you want us to rely on you, lean on you, look to you. So I pray we'd be doing that more. And I pray the study for the last 10 sessions would be something that uh, would be part of that fuel to make that happen. So God, thanks for this crowd. Thanks for their uh, receptivity, their eagerness to learn. I pray it bear a lot of from Jesus' name.